Father, these are tremendous words, and our hearts do uh, affirm our gratitude and our thankfulness for all that you have done for us in Christ. And we do say hallelujah. What a Savior that we have. Help us to have eyes enlightened, even as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, uh, that we would behold throughout all of our days here an increasing uh, a sense of the glory of our salvation and of grace and, and have an increasing wonder at all that you have done for us in Christ. We ask now that you would attend your word this morning as we look particularly at the life of Peter, that we would be encouraged not so much with Peter, but with you, our God. His God is our God, and your grace displayed in his life is your grace displayed in our life. And so may we, may we see that and again be encouraged by it to be faithful, to trust you, and to be pursuing that spiritual growth and maturity that you are always prompting us to through your providence and your word in our own lives. And it's to this end we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, before I begin, I do want to just mention that we had men's study. We have such a great turnout and such a good time in it. So anybody who's not coming would encourage you to be there on Saturday mornings and on our Sunday school. Uh, I don't know if most everybody here uh, is, attends the Sunday school, but to go, we have such great teachers there. Jesse's been going through the attributes of God, and Joe just finished up a series. And so uh, if you don't attend, would encourage you to do that. Uh, this morning, originally, actually last week, I was planning on being out of town and going down to visit my parents in North Carolina the last part of this week, and I had asked Tim Malvaso, if, uh, who's not here because he's sick, uh, which kind of leads to my point, uh, if he would preach this Sunday morning. Uh, but he was sick with the flu, and it finally caught up with him, and it had already run through the house with the rest of his family. And so I found out yesterday afternoon that he would not be available uh, to preach this morning, um, at least not coherently. And so uh, uh, that fell to me with much joy and actually in God's good providence, it works out just perfect because what immediately became apparent is that this would be a great opportunity to step back and do something that we did several years ago, actually in 2010, and that is look at the life of the Apostle Peter and look at God's grace in his life and the way that God shaped him. And so that actually is the title of this morning, Peter, uh, the Shaping of an Apostle. I think I got that right. So what I want to do this morning, and really serving as a transition into the book of 1 Peter, which we'll begin more formally next week, uh, is just to look at the life of this man whom God called not only into fellowship with himself through faith in Christ, ultimately through faith in Christ, uh, but a man whom God's grace shaped to be this great instrument used of God in his church and uh, the fruit of which is we're uh, experiencing this morning, even as we look uh, at his epistle, uh, in these, or we'll be looking at his epistle in the days ahead. First Peter, let me, let me begin, though, with the opening verse, or the opening part of this verse, uh, begins this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he was, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is a very significant, it is a very exalted title. It identifies a man who was chosen to be a unique representative of Jesus Christ and an instrument in the revelation of the New Covenant Scriptures. Uh, this is an exalted role that Peter had. This is a high office that God had bestowed on him and it is a great honor and a great privilege that he received from the Lord to be called Peter, an apostle 
of Jesus Christ. And yet as exalted as that title is, he was a man who was like us in many ways. He was a a man beset with weaknesses, and therefore he is a portrait of divine grace. He is a portrait of God's work of providential shaping his servants to be those he wants them to be to serve him in his church. He was a man just like us. And so as we look at the shaping of Peter to be an apostle, again, who would pin in this letter, and the second letter, words of the eternal words of the new covenant, we see an example of God's grace and providential work of shaping us to be the kind of people and servants and saints that God would have us to be. So while this is in one sense an introduction and a transition into our look at 1 Peter, the epistle of 1 Peter, it's more than that. It's an encouraging example, I think, of how God works in our lives, how God takes us who are weak and stumbling and still sinning saints and uses us and shapes us and molds us again to be instruments and vessels for His glory. So I want to begin just briefly, and and we'll do this rather quickly, uh, it's just looking at the life of Peter as a man. Who was Peter in, in, as this person? And we'll begin looking at the background of the man. The background of the man. Where did he come from? What were his experiences in life uh, out of which the Lord called him? Well, he was a common man. He was a very common man. We are familiar with Peter as a fisherman along the Sea of Galilee. There he served in a business with his family, with his brother Andrew, and with friends of theirs, James and John. And they were then working class, sort of blue collar kind of people. Blue collar Jews working along the Sea of Galilee. He was, however, brought up in a faithful Jewish family. A faithful Jewish family. It's shown throughout uh, our uh, views of Peter, observations of Peter. He was someone who knew the scriptures. And though under the power and the directing influence of the Holy Spirit, we can see that his mind was filled with scriptures throughout his life. The very uh, opening sermon of the new covenant of the church in Acts chapter 2. Peter was filled with the message and the words of the prophets that he was then able to bring to bear as a witness to Jesus Christ as the one anticipated and the one who exactly came according to the scriptures and died and was risen again. He was one who had a life of faithfulness, of obedience to the scriptures. Again, we can see that in many places, but in Acts chapter 10, 14, Peter said when he saw the, the vision coming down of all the unclean things in the sheet, he says, I've never touched these things. Why? Because he was a good Jew. He obeyed the dietary laws and all of the other stipulations of the Mosaic covenant and those things that would have marked him out as a man who was a faithful Jewish man, a faithful Jewish child of the covenant, of the old covenant. And even though he knew scriptures, and even though he was a faithful Jew, he was yet a common man. He was unlearned in any kind of formal training in the rabbinical schools or whatever. We see that in Acts chapter 4. The leaders actually looked at Peter and others with disdain because they lacked this formal training. He was also a man who was married. Uh, this comes in Matthew 8, 14, 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Mentions Peter's mother-in-law in uh, Matthew chapter 8 and Peter's wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, we don't have any record of his children, but in fact we can assume that if he was married that he did in fact have children as well. 
uh, that's silent to us in terms of history. We have no record of that. But again, he was simply a common Jewish blue-collar fisherman along the Sea of Galilee, a faithful Jewish man whom God called to do great things. What about his background with the Lord? His background with the Lord. Well, according to John uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 35 to 42, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. And that again showing his commitment as a faithful Jew. Here this, this prophet, this really wild-haired prophet coming out of the desert, preaching as a messenger, the coming of the Messiah. And Peter was one who had attached himself to this person and John the Baptist's ministry to learn from him, uh, eagerly anticipating the one that John was pointing to, namely the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of the nation of Israel that would come to them. Uh, in fact, it was not Peter, though, who first came to Jesus. It was his brother, Andrew, who then went out and got his brother and brought him to Jesus. And Peter immediately latched himself on uh, to that ministry. And in, as with all of those early disciples, as soon as he latched himself to Jesus' ministry, Jesus began a process, really what would turn out to be a three-year process of training him and the other disciples uh, to the ministry that he would call them to. And we're immediately struck with what he was exposed to in John chapter 2. As he went to the wedding of Cana, he was among the first to see the signs of the Lord. You'll remember there that Jesus turned the water into wine. That was the first of his signs. And immediately from there, John records to us what uh, I believe was one of two instances of Jesus clearing out the temple. Uh, but in John chapter 2, he immediately or uh, brought into this episode of Jesus seeing the, the sin and the, the foolishness, spiritual foolishness going on in the temple, clears it out, and, and Peter was a witness to these things. And so all of this was not only revealing Christ to them, but was Christ shaping them to be witnesses to his ministry. In fact, to be later an apostle. Peter, uh, Christ was also uh, involved in shaping Peter's character, something that will look at a bit later, but we see a striking example of this, of shaping him internally to be an apostle in Luke chapter 5. And again, I'm just going to mention some of these quickly, but in Luke chapter 5, you'll remember the instant, uh, incident where Peter was uh, in a boat with Jesus, and Jesus uh, told them to put their net out to the side uh, to catch fish after they had gone through a long night of uh, catching nothing. And so they did so, they got a great quantity of fish, and Peter, overcome with what this demonstrated and indicated about who Jesus was, uh, fell down at his feet, Man, Luke 5, 8 tells us, and Peter said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I am a sinful man. Now, Peter didn't yet have a full understanding of all of the, the full nature of Christ and his person and his deity and all of those things. But this was a beginning point in the Lord's training and revealing himself to him and to the others of his unique glory. And Peter was beginning to be humbled. He was coming to a greater and a greater and a greater faith as Jesus was working in his life. And it was after this experience that Jesus later called Peter and the others to be a follower of him as a unique group of disciples. There were general disciples, of course, and groups that followed him, but Peter was among those few 
12 to be exact, that were called out to a special training ministry by the Lord, preparing them to be future representatives, minus Judas Iscariot, the traitor. And so this call to follow Jesus was the final step in all of his preparatory work in Peter's life and the others' lives uh, to bring them into this ministry that he was shaping them to fulfill. Now Peter, however, the one among the twelve had a unique position, as we are well familiar with. He was called not only to be a disciple, not only to be a future apostle, but also to be a leader among the disciples. And that is, in fact, what he was. And we see this, again, throughout the gospel accounts particularly. Uh, he was always first in the list. That was, had intention behind it. It was to show that Peter was, in fact, the leader. He was among the inner circle of Jesus that consisted of Peter, of James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, often taken along by themselves to witness particular manifestations of Christ's glory, such as the transfiguration, the raising of a dead child, and so forth. He was training them particularly, but even among that inner group, Peter was clearly the leader. He was the chief spokesman among the uh, disciples often being the first one to open his mouth, which, you know, had good points and bad points to it. Uh, the bad points was he often said things that were foolish. I, one pastor, I can't remember who it was, called Peter the, the man, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth uh, because he was often getting himself in trouble. But he was also, by his quickness to speak, one who teaches us uh, many lessons and we benefit from it, one is, is that he was very inquisitive. He was very inquisitive. He was, he was always eager to understand. And so he was also always one who would be the first to ask questions of the Lord's teaching. Questions to which the Lord answered. And therefore we become the beneficiaries of the answer. In Matthew 18, 21, Peter is the first to say, Well, how many times should I forgive? Which led into the Lord giving his great parable about forgiveness and the, the steward, the king who forgave this insurmountable debt to one of his servants and so on and so forth. In the parable of the faithful slave, Peter said in Luke 12, Are you addressing this parable to us? Which led to great teaching of the Lord. In John 13, 24, he says, Tell us of whom he is speaking. In 13, 36, Lord, where are you going? In John 21, 21, what about this man? Speaking of actually the apostle John himself. So Peter was always one who was to not only speak, but to ask questions, to seek to understand. And, and because of that, we, we learn so much. Peter was also the one that Jesus also addressed, or Jesus often addressed first. If you'll remember them all sleeping in the boat in Matthew 26, 40. It was to Peter that the Lord first addressed himself, why are you, why are you so afraid? So Peter was clearly the leader, he was identified and marked out as the leader among the disciples. But it's not only because he was mentioned first, he was the one actually that the Jewish leaders went to when they had an issue. It's not only because Jesus addressed him first, but the truest test of leadership, of course, is always to see if anybody's following, right? To see if anybody is following. And we see that as well in the life of Peter. He had a great influence over the other disciples. Wherever Peter went, the disciples went. Whatever Peter said, the disciples said. We see this all the time, or we see this often throughout uh, the gospel accounts. Uh, one example of that 
is Matthew 26, 33 through 35. And Jesus said that he was going to go away, tells him of his future suffering and so on and so forth. And then he tells Peter that he was going to deny him. And Peter said, I will never deny you. Or actually, he said this before Jesus confronted him. But Peter said, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. After Jesus was uh, resurrected, but, and, but still revealing himself to them, Peter, being discouraged by previous failure, said, I am going fishing. And, of course, the other disciples said, we will come with you as well in John chapter 21. So the point is, is that Peter had a great influence over the other disciples. They followed him wherever he went. They, they took his lead, and, in fact, he was the leader among them, and they all recognized that. So Peter was a leader. He was called out to that unique position by the Lord. But what was his basic character and his basic temperament? What, what, what was the raw material that the Lord was working with uh, in the person of Peter? Well, let's just briefly look at that. Now, even as before we look at that, we all can acknowledge probably, I think we would, most of us agree, that we have, and people in general, have sort of this natural affinity to Peter. We always kind of like Peter. And we like Peter because Peter fails a lot. Peter does a lot of foolish things. He says a lot of foolish things. He does a lot of foolish things. He acts impetuously. He gets himself in trouble. And we generally can say, well, I can identify with that. That I understand. Sometimes we can maybe think we identify less with someone like the Apostle Paul, who, who uh, very rarely do we see mistakes in his life. We know they were there. But with Peter, we see him all the time. And so we're thankful for that because he is then an encouragement to us. And because Peter was so on the surface and so sincere and transparent, uh, we, again, can identify with him because all of his weaknesses and failures are right on the surface for us to see. But if there is one thing about Peter that can be said, it is this, that he was all in in everything that he did. He was all in in everything. He didn't do anything halfway. If Peter was going to do it, he was going to do it 100%. His whole person was going to be involved in it. And we appreciate that about him. I think along of these lines of John 13, when he, Jesus is there in the upper room with his disciples and Jesus was washing their feet and and came to Peter and Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And, and Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me. And what did Peter shout, uh, spout out right after that? Well, hey, man, don't wash, my, don't wash my feet only. Wash my whole body. And that was Peter. That was Peter. He was always there. He was all out. He was all in whatever he was doing. And this is why we always find Peter at both the highest and the lowest points in the life of Jesus and with his disciples and really in the life of the church as well. One church historian, Philip Chaff, caught this uh, well. He said this of Peter. He was both the strongest and the weakest of the twelve. No character in the New Testament is brought before us in such lifelike colors. With all his virtues and faults as that of Peter... He was frank and transparent and always gave himself as he was without any reserve. And that's exactly true. And that's, again, why we appreciate him so much. And we appreciate God calling him out to uh, be an example to us of these things. But he was, in all of his rashness and brashness, also a bit unstable and double-minded. And what that just reminds us of is this, is that 
Peter's strengths were also his weaknesses. And that's how it is with us as well, isn't it? That's just part of being human. The things that are our strengths also at the same time are our weaknesses. Peter's strength was that he saw a challenge and he met it head on. He, a thought came to his mind and he spoke it. But that was, again, also his weakness as well. And so Peter, while he had a lot of raw material, is somebody who needed to be shaped. His, his strengths needed to be honed and shaped by this providential working of the Lord so that his weaknesses would be diminished, his strengths would be emphasized, and he would be a greater instrument under the influence of the Holy Spirit for the Lord's glory. And so it is for us as well. And, you know, because he was so transparent, he was also a man of contrast. He was a man of contrast. Let me just give a few of those. Peter is a man who had this incredibly strong faith and at the same time a weak faith. He had both a strong and a weak faith. And again, this is like us, isn't it? One minute we're boldly trusting the Lord, maybe speaking out for the Lord, depending on the Lord in some great way. And the next minute we're denying the Lord or acting in unbelief and weakness of faith. We do that all the time. One minute we have unshakable faith and we speak with confidence and trust in God. And then we can turn around that same day or the next day and be anxious, worrying, doubtful, fearful, or keeping silent when we should speak. And that's how it was with Peter as well. One of the greatest examples we have of that, of course, is him walking on the water and then sinking in that same water. In Matthew 14, we won't read the whole account. I'm just mentioning these, really. But you'll remember it, that Jesus had sent his disciples on to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Why, he stayed behind and was on the mountain praying. And after he had finished, he would, Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee at night. Why, the disciples were struggling in a storm. And they see the Lord. They think at first it's a ghost. But the Lord speaks to them. And he says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And what does Peter do? Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he, being Jesus, said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. That's, a, that's great faith. That's incredible faith. Peter was doing something that you're not supposed to do, and that is walking on water. And he was doing it because he so trusted Christ. His eyes were so focused on the Lord, whom he had known to be a unique a message and rep- messenger and representative of God, that he was out of the boat, onto the waves, the wind howling, the noise it was making, the waves large, crashing up and down, and there was Peter walking on the water. But then what happened? Do you know the story? You know the story. He begins to see the wind and the waves and going up and down. He begins to hear and pay more attention to the sounds of the, the howling wind and the storm that were going on around him. And as soon as he saw them, his faith was weakened, his eyes were off of Christ, and he began to sink. And so Matthew tells us, But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to seek, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus, in mercy, stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And that really is a, is a microcosm, an example of the life of Peter. In one minute, bold, reaching out to the Lord, trusting him, and in the next minute, quick to doubt, quick to lack faith, quick to be unbelieving. So he had both strong and he had both weak faith. And again, we can identify with that. 
Sometimes, again, we're so bold for the Lord, and other times we act as really sort of, I don't know, this word sounds so hard to say it, but spiritual cowards, as it were. We're doubting, we're weak, and we're anxious. And that was how it was in the life of Peter. That's how it was. He was also then courageous and cowardly all at the same time. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 51, he is in the garden with Jesus when Judas betrayed him and they came to take him away. And when they do that, when they came to take Jesus away, Peter is greatly offended and he takes out his sword and he's ready to fight for Jesus. He's ready to risk his own life. And it says in verse 51 of Matthew 26, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we learn later, and this is Peter, reached, drew out a sword, struck the slave of the high priest, and cut off his ear. I mean, imagine that. I mean, you had, you had Roman soldiers there. You had Jewish leaders there. You had sort of this chaotic scene in the middle of the night with Jesus there and his disciples. And they're coming to take him away. You have torches and swords and all of the stuff that would go with that. A very intimidating sight. And Peter just puts all of that aside in blind courage and absolute confidence is going to take them all on with his own sword. And of course, Jesus told him to put it away. But that took great courage, great courage. And yet we read just a little bit on in the same chapter and we find Peter cowering, afraid to be identified with the Lord, keeping himself at a distance, denying Christ three times when he's identified by a slave girl and others as he's standing around a fire. He was acting cowardly. He was acting timidly and fearfully. And so he was a man of great courage but he was also a man that could quickly slide into cowardice and fear and deny the Lord even in vehement terms. Three times he said to the Lord, or three times he said of Christ, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. Even tending that with swearing and oaths and so forth. And he was... In that moment, brought very low and sunk down because he was aware of his own own cowardice. And again, we can relate to that, and that's why we appreciate Peter. Sometimes, again, we'll speak and witness to the truth, and we'll do it regardless of the consequences, regardless of the intimidation we feel or that we should feel because we're so emboldened by the truth of the message. And then other times, at the slightest hint of being thought foolish or being thought unable to to be eloquent that we fear from speaking anything at all and we act foolishly i think of a of an illustration that was in a, a book one time it was talking about evangelism it had this big old muscular guy and there was this like little child sitting on the bench and the the however it was but this this guy was all fearful and scared and kept going back and forth, not wanting to go up and speak the gospel to this little child. And we can identify with that sometimes, that cowardliness, that cowardness. But, but notice this, that not only was Peter the only one to get out of the boat, Peter was also following the Lord where ten of the others were not. John most likely was. John, the, one of the sons of Zebedee, and then Peter himself was following the Lord. So yes, he was acting in cowardice, but he was also showing his deep devotion and his deep love for the one he had 
committed himself to. So he was strong and he was weak in faith. He was courageous one moment, cowardly the next. He was insightful and dull at the same time. In John chapter 6, after Jesus gave his teaching on being the bread of life, as being the one that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, many of the disciples left. Jesus said, do you not want to go too? And Peter is the one who spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. You have the words of life. You're the one whom we've come to trust. He was very insightful. When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And and they listed off all of the options that the crowds were saying. And Peter is the one in Matthew 16 who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon of Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven revealed that to you. He was a man who was given great insight. And yet, then he could turn right around and do some really stupid things, like rebuke the Lord. When the Lord told him that, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be rejected by the chief priest, and they're going, to, they're going to hand me over, and he's going to be killed, but he's going to rise on the third day. And Peter, full of his spiritual insights, rebukes the Lord, takes him, across, takes him aside and says, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus, of course, had to front, confront him uh, rather strikingly. Same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes up Peter, James, and John. They see this incredible scene of Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. And what does Peter do waking up from his slumber? He, well, he has to say something because he's Peter. And so he says, Lord, let us build these three tabernacles to you. And he had to be rebuked by the Father himself from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. In other words, don't put Jesus in the same category of Elijah and Moses. Jesus is in the category by himself as the eternal son in flesh. And on it goes. He was insightful and he was dull. And again, we can relate to that. He was sincere and he was inconsistent. He was sincere at times, but he was also inconsistent. In Luke 24... Peter is one who, having heard of the Lord's resurrection, got up and again with John ran to the tomb. He ran to the tomb. He was so eager to witness this great truth that they had heard that the Lord had risen, that he wasn't there, that angels had revealed themselves to these women and said that, in fact, the Lord had risen, even as he said he was. And so Peter, full of love and sincerity for Christ, gets up and runs to the tomb. But then it's not much later after that, even after he knew of the Lord's resurrection, that being discouraged and lacking a robust faith, he goes back to fishing. He goes back to his own lifestyle. And yet no sooner is he in that lifestyle and fishing on the water that Jesus appears on the shore. And what does Peter do? Strips down and he jumps into the water because the Lord was there and he just had to be with the Lord. He loved him tremendously. He really did love the Lord. And so Peter, though a natural leader, was very much a diamond in his rough, a diamond in the rough. His natural temperament temperament and gifts suited him for the role, but it came with the dross of sin and pride and self-confidence that the Lord would need to burn off. And the Lord is burning those things off in our own life. And And I would just make a little footnote here that often when we think of Peter we tend to identify and emphasize only his weaknesses. But he was a man of great strengths. 
He was a man of great courage, a man of great faith, a man who, yes, needed to be humbled and often did things he shouldn't do, but he was a man who learned from his mistakes, by and large. He was a man who submitted to the Lord's shepherding work in his life, and he was, more importantly and above all else, he was a man who intensely loved Christ. He failed, yes, but he loved him. He loved him sincerely. He loved him dearly. He loved him and he would give his life for him. And that really is the key to it all. And so the Lord had a lot of work to do in his life as he does in our own, conforming us to the image of his son. So let me look just briefly then at that, that work. And I hope this is encouraging to us. Probably one of the main things that Peter needed to learn, and I would dare say that you and I both need to learn too, and I know can speak from my own life, I feel like of all the people in the universe, the Lord has uniquely committed himself to producing this in my life, and it is humility. It is humility. I feel like, as you do sometimes, like all of the divine resources of wisdom and energy are spent just to uh, remind me of how foolish and weak I am of myself and how dependent on the Lord I am. And Peter needed that lesson as well. And, he, and because he had such a strong personality, because he had so many natural, good, and strong qualities for leadership, the Lord had to do some particularly humbling works in his life. And don't you find that to be the case? I mean, God works in our life individually. Uh, he knows our personalities. He knows the things that he needs to do. He knows the things that are most, uh, for us, uh, difficult. He knows that one thing that needs most to be addressed by his providence, that area of sin or whatever. And so he works in all of our lives uniquely. But it's also so that when somebody has a particularly strong will, those sort of you know, those who have that natural quality of just, you know, stepping out and being strong uh, in and of themselves, the Lord has to do some particularly hard works in their life sometime because we're so hard-headed and we're so stubborn and so tend to be hard of heart. And that's how it was with Peter. That's how it was with Peter. But there's also a little something else going on in Peter's life that was unique to him as the leader. And that was this, before I get into some specific things, that was that Satan also had a particular bullseye on Peter's life because Peter was a leader. Peter was one in whom the Lord was going to invest much responsibility to lead the disciples, to be a leader among his chosen band. And so that made him a special target of Satan. As a matter of fact, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, you'll remember that as they were sitting around at the table, Jesus said of Peter speaking to him that it is him that Satan wanted to sift like wheat. And then he encourages him and says, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Peter was the leader, and so Satan first wanted to go after him, and that's how he works. He is the enemy of all Christians. He is the enemy of all those who would do God's work. He wants to see every Christian fail and he works to that end. But he does uniquely so in the lives of leaders. Because leaders have the greater influence. And so if he can make pastors and elders and teachers and those who are the most visible fail and fall into sin, then the damage he can do is exponential. It's much greater. It has a much wider effect. And so he, those are the ones whom he attacks the most. Those are the ones he wants to see fail. And that just is a little side note, is a reminder of why we need to pray 
for our leaders, particularly that God would grow them in holiness and be protecting them from the wiles of the evil, evil one. And so it was in Peter's life. So, so Satan was uniquely engaged in the activity of making Peter fall, making Peter fall. But the encouraging part of that is that the Lord had prayed for him. The Lord knew what was coming. The Lord knew that he would fail. The Lord knows that we'll fail. The Lord knows that we're going to need to pick ourselves off. The Lord knows before we come to him groveling, not groveling, but just humbly and broken to him after our sin. The Lord knows that. He's, he knows that. He knew that when he was suffering on the cross. He knew that as he took our sin that, that we would still commit it. And he bore the penalty for it. And he always stands as a gracious Savior interceding for us before the Father. And so it was in the life of Peter. But nonetheless, he needed to feel his own weakness. And since the devil is God's devil, he used the devil in that process. But really, in the end, it was the Lord's sovereign work in his life. So what did he do? He humbled him. He humbled him. He humbled him deeply, very deeply. I already mentioned it, but in both Matthew 16 and Mark 8, when Jesus or when Peter kind of feeling his oats after receiving this high commendation, this mark of honor from the Lord. Peter, you are the rock. You're the one I'm going to build my church on. You are the one who received this particular insight and illumination from the Father into my person, into the reality of my glory. And Peter, kind of feeling his oats and feeling a little bloated, no doubt spiritually because of that, needed to be brought low. And so when he takes Jesus aside to rebuke him, Jesus doesn't put his arm around his shoulder and kind of gently point out his error. Rather, he turns to him and he looks him in the eye and he says what? Remember? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Addressing him as if he were Satan, though really referring to the power that was behind his great act of foolishness. Can you even imagine how deflated he felt at that moment? Can you imagine how his heart sunk down into his stomach as the Lord confronted him and gave him such a strong rebuke? Probably none in the history of all of the disciples have ever felt lower than Peter did at that moment. More put back into his place under the Lord's rebuking work in his life. He was a little full of himself, but that all went away in an instant. And we know this reality too, don't we? Again, that's not too different from us. Sometimes our victories are not, or not long behind our victories are some significant defeats, right? Not long after we have some kind of spiritual victory or some great thing that we do for the Lord that the Lord seems sometimes quick to remind us as well through failure and a taste of our own weakness to remind us that it is not our strength that he uses, but his own. That's why Paul says, what? I boast in my weaknesses. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. And if the apostle Paul needed that so he didn't become puffed up, how much more do we need that in our own lives? Our own lives to be humbled by the Lord. And so when things go well and the Lord uses us at times, we're prone to be puffed up with personal grandeur or sort of a sense of self-importance and ability. And the Lord deals with us swiftly and decisively, just as he did in Peter's life. Uh, he also let Peter be humbled by personal failure. 
by personal failure. And sometimes this can be, I think, the hardest lesson for us. Is to fail personally, particularly in those things that you think you're the strongest in. Those things that you think, if there's anything that I can do, if there's any place that I can stand on my own, if there's anything that I can do in my own strength, the Lord delights in letting us realize that we can't. And he does that through personal failure. And this was probably, maybe even in Peter's own life, the hardest lesson. One of the hardest and most significant lessons that he would learn feeling the bitterness of his own pride. Let me just remind you of Mark chapter 14. This is recorded in all of the uh, Gospels. Uh, But Mark chapter 14, you'll remember the scene. Jesus was with his disciples around in the the table. He said he was going to go basically be handed over. He was going to die and rise again. And then he tells the disciples that they're going to leave him and they're going to desert him. Peter says, no, we will never do that. We'll never desert you, Lord. You have my word. He says, even if I have to die with you, I'm not going to deny you. I will not desert you, Lord. Everybody else may desire uh, leave you. These other disciples may be losers. They may be failures. They may be those who crumble in the face of adversity. But, Lord, I will not do that. I can assure you, I am resolute in my commitment to you. Come what may. Uh, that's a recipe for disaster. We all love commitment and we all love resolution, but this wasn't a resolution born of dependence on God's sustaining grace and God's work in him. This was a resolution based on his own strength and his own power. And so the Lord needed to address that directly. And again, we already mentioned it. We know what happens He's in the garden, he stands up, but they take the Lord after Jesus told him to put his sword away, and Peter scatters. Again, he follows from a distance, and then he denies the Lord three times. Now that would be bad enough on its own, because he knew when he heard the cock crow, just as Jesus had said, that he in fact had failed the Lord. That he in fact had did the very thing that he said he would never do, and the very thing that the Lord said that he would do, which in itself is a picture of his arrogance because the Lord said you're going to deny me and Peter said no I won't the Lord said you're going to fail directly no I'm not I won't fail Lord you must be mistaken you must be thinking somebody else maybe you're thinking of Andrew my brother and you've gotten us confused I would never do that and so pride comes before a fall and Peter's fall was great and it needed to be great because Peter had a great lesson he needed to learn And so he denied the Lord three times. He heard the cock crow. But before that, Luke 22, 60 through 62, tells us something else. Luke tells us that as Jesus was being led from one home to another, at this point, already bloodied, already having received abuse from his captors, already having been humiliated and falsely accused, no doubt already well weakened, though it would get much worse. Luke tells us that as Jesus was being led from one to the other, that he turned and he looked, and their eyes met. Do you remember that? Their eyes met. Peter, having just been crushed with the reality that he had denied the Lord, that he had been shown to be weak, though he claimed to be strong, and then the Lord looks at him. His eyes meet him directly. And again, I would venture to say that was probably... 
Much, much worse even than being called Satan. Because he loved the Lord. He loved him. And when his eyes met and he saw the Lord whom he loved beaten and broken and bruised, falsely accused, well aware of his own declarations of strength and at that moment intensely aware of his failure, knew something even worse, that Peter wasn't the one who knew about his failure alone, but the Lord knew too. And the Lord looked at him. And the conviction that would have been deep into his soul is unbelievable. And that's why the gospel writers tell us that he went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. But again, he wept because he loved the Lord. He loved him. He loved him. And again, that's, we can identify with that, can't we? We can identify with that. How many have not been intensely confronted at times with your own weakness through personal failure? The Lord lets you fail miserably. And we go to the Lord ashamed, broken, sorrowful. And yet the Lord always is there to forgive. He is a sympathetic high priest. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we are but dust. And as he did with Peter, he lifts him up. And so not only did the Lord humble him by direct rebuke, by personal failure, he also encouraged him. He also encouraged him. Remember what he said in that night when Jesus said that Satan wants to sift you like wheat? He also, wheat, he also said this, but I prayed for you and once you've returned to your brothers, once you have returned, once you have returned to me, like Peter, I know you're going to fail. That does not take me by surprise. But I want you to know that after you fail, you will be restored. You will be restored. You're going to need to learn this lesson. So I'm going to let Satan have his way with you and let you feel your weakness. But I've prayed for you. I haven't abandoned you. I'm not finished with you. You will return and you will be used to strengthen your brothers. He encouraged him too after the resurrection. Jesus specifically said, and go tell Peter. And go tell Peter. Peter who denied me, Peter who was broken, is the Peter I want to encourage. I want to build him back up. I want to let him know that he's still useful to me and that I still love him. And so he encouraged him and he restored him. And the restoration came, we're familiar with, in John chapter 21. Peter, no doubt, feeling very discouraged, useless for the kingdom because of his recent failure, as we noted before, went back to his old profession from which the Lord first called him. He went back to fishing. He went back to fishing. And you know, you can imagine what Peter felt. He no doubt felt like, what use am I? Right? I think I'm hot stuff. I think I'm this great apostle of the Lord and the leader. And what do I do? I let my mouth be used by Satan. I think I'm this great strong leader that everybody can follow. And what do I do? I deny the Lord three times and I abandon him. What use am I in the kingdom? What good can I do for him? Who would dare follow me? And of course, they, they still did because many of them went fishing too. But you can imagine how deflated and defeated and low that this man felt at this time. And again, we understand that. How often have you failed after failure, you just drop the ball, you feel like. Something that the Lord gave you to do, and you're just like, man, I just want to go off and live in a field somewhere by myself. So I can't do any more damage. I can't fail anymore. But the Lord doesn't let us do that, does he? The Lord restores us. The Lord is committed to us. 
The Lord is committed to shaping us and using us. And so, yes, we get discouraged, just like Peter. Yes, we want to somehow just check out and kind of remove from ourselves the opportunity to fail anymore because we're so broken by it. And yet the Lord seeks us out, and that's exactly what he did with Peter. And so he goes along the shore. He reveals himself to the disciples. They say it is the Lord. We, we mentioned this. He jumps in the water. He swims to the Lord. He just had to be with him. He couldn't stay away. As broken as he was, he couldn't stay away. And we, again, we know that. Even in our greatest sense of failure, we just can't stay away, we who love the Lord. And, and the Lord didn't cast him off, but he used him. And, and in a sense, he was saying this, Peter, you're a little more ready to be a leader now. You've always had some raw material, but now you're a little more useful. Because you're humbled. You've been humbled. And how you're a little further along the road of realizing, Peter, if you're going to be useful in my kingdom, it's not going to be by your strength. And that's how it is with us. If you're going to be useful in my kingdom, it's going to be through my strength. But here he takes this broken man, Peter, and he lifts him up and he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Can you imagine that? How, how astounding would that have, have, that, that have been to him? Put yourself in his shoes. How would you, me, feed your sheep? Me, the man who just denied you, the man who just let you down, the man who failed so publicly before all of the disciples, they all knew what he did. And not only that, it's going to be recorded forever, what I did. And Jesus says, I know that. I know that. But Peter, I'm working in your life. The problem is, even by asking that question, you still, he's not recorded as that, but by ask, thinking that way, you're still focused on yourself. You're still focused on yourself. Has this, this had anything to do with you? Peter, I'm the one who've called you. I'm the one who's shaping you. I'm the one who's determined how I'm going to use you. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. And that's how it is with us. And so the Lord did. He and Peter opened up the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. He was the mouth that God used to preach the first new covenant sermon on which 3,000 souls that day were saved. And so he did learn these lessons of humility. And he became, and we'll look more at this next week, one uniquely enabled then to write an epistle like First Peter. Do you think when Peter wrote those words and he says, Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. When he says your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You think anybody knew that like Peter? Peter knew that. He could write to these Christians who were needed to be strengthened because he said, I know, I've been there. I can speak from experience on these things. I have a unique insight into how that works. Now let me encourage you in a similar way. So he learned his lessons. But before I wrap up, I want to just remind us of this too. Even though he learned his lessons, even though God boldly used him, it doesn't mean he never had a relapse. We, we, have, we have besetting sins, all of us. And even though we sometimes have great victory over these sins, we also can tend to get ensnared in them again. We sometimes can move two steps forward, it feels like, and then three steps back. Or two steps forward and one step back. And we just are in this sort of ping-pong process of sanctification sometimes. And it happens with Peter, because even though he learned these great lessons... 
even though he was humbled, even though he was a changed and a shaped man, even though after Pentecost he was a man that had the fullness of the Spirit, he was also a man prone to commit the same error. And so we have an example of that. And God doesn't record anything by accident. And although there was a theological point in this failure of Peter, there's also a very practical one that we learn from. In Galatians chapter 2, you'll remember when some of the men from James uh, came down, some of the Jews came down, possibly some Judaizers among them. Peter, who used to dine and eat with the Gentiles, became all of a sudden ashamed of that. Ashamed of the opinion of these leaders that had come from the Jerusalem church. And what did he do? He began to deny the gospel. And again, because of his position as a leader, and because Peter always did things so publicly, Paul had to address him publicly. And he called him out and basically said, Peter, you're a hypocrite. You're sinning. You're denying the gospel when you do that. And Peter did it before all. He rebuked him Or Paul did that to Peter before all. He rebuked him sharply. And Peter still needed to be brought low. He was still tending to fall into some of these same besetting sins. He still needed to be humbled. And he still needed to be shaped and molded. And so, in fact, that's what the Lord was doing. And in the end, what marks a successful leader, and not only a leader, but really every a maturing and a growing Christian is this. Not that they're perfect, not that there's not sin, not that there's not failure, but that we learn from it. That when we are exposed in our foolishness, we readily admit our foolishness before the Lord and we change. We confess our sin. And Peter did that. We need to do that. It's not that a leader never makes bad calls or that a father and a husband never makes bad calls and never makes a mistake, but it is that when they do, they acknowledge them and they learn from them and they move on in faithfulness. I heard one say one time that being a good leader isn't making great first decisions, it's making the good second decisions. Because we fail, we're imperfect, but that we learn and that we grow, but we don't try to cover up for our sin and make excuses and become self-defensive, but when we're exposed, we let that exposure have its full effect, and we say, yes, that's who I am. I failed miserably. I am that proud, disobedient, inconsistent person in that moment, and I acknowledge that, and that's why I rest on grace. That's what marks a mature and a growing and a useful Christian. Again, it's not that we don't sin and fail, but that when we do, we repent, we learn, we grow, We move on in faithfulness and we become more useful to the Lord. So he wasn't a perfect man. We're not perfect people, but he was a changed and maturing man. And hopefully that's the same that is true for us as well. And probably one of the most important things about Peter's life is that he ended well. He ended well. Clement of Alexandria in the second century records the death of Peter's wife, actually, in this way. And... You can see the faith of Peter, not only of his wife, in this. Uh, Clement says this. They say accordingly that the blessed Peter, on seeing his wife led to death, rejoiced on account of her call and conveyance home, and called very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name. And he said, Remember thou the Lord. And such was the marriage of the blessed and their perfect disposition towards those dearest to them. Here, can you imagine that? A man so full of faith at the end of his life, not cowering off somewhere as a defeated Christian, a humbled one, even that he could see his wife led off to her death 
and encourage her to be faithful to the Lord. Be faithful to the Lord and rejoice that she should have the honor of dying for her Lord. Dying out of her faith in Christ. And Peter had the same. You remember that Jesus told him that when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Now you can't be 100% certain of how Peter died, but it's on pretty well established early church testimony that Peter died as a martyr. That he died as a martyr. That he was crucified under the Roman persecution headed by Nero. And matter of fact, Clement, uh, an early church father, who's probably mentioned in Philippians chapter 4 or 3 by the Apostle Paul. Clement wrote a letter known as the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. And in that, he refers to Peter's death in this way as a martyr. He says, Peter... Through unrighteous envy endured not one or two, but numerous labors. And when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due him. Eusebius records his death and his work, church history. Eusebius is an ancient church historian. And then there's an apocryphal work named the Acts of the Holy Apostles of Peter and Paul. So though it's an apocryphal writing, it's generally conceded that this is probably an accurate account of how Peter died. And that writer says this, Then both Peter and Paul were led away from the presence of Nero, and Paul was beheaded on the Ostesian road. And Peter, having come to the cross, said, Since my Lord Jesus Christ, who came down from the heaven upon the earth, was raised upon the cross upright, and he was deigned to call to heaven me, who am of the earth, my cross ought to be fixed head downmost. So as to direct my feet toward heaven. For I am not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. And then having reversed the cross, they nailed his feet upward. And so he died well. He died well. He failed miserably, but he was restored and he repented. He was full of weaknesses, but he was restored and returned to the Lord to be useful. And he died well. And he died well. And that's, that's what we want. Many of us can start well, and many of people have started well, but to die well, to end well, to go out of this world with a clear conscience, having been faithful to the Lord, that's what we want, and that's what Peter had, and we certainly can use, learn from that. And so in all of this, as we come into the epistle of 1 Peter, we have a display not so much of a great man, but of a gracious Lord. He was a great man indeed, and we have much to learn from him, but Peter, like all of us, is fell into that category described by Paul in Romans 3 that we were useless. We were useless. We were under sin, under condemnation. And that's what Peter was and that's what we were. But by that wonder of divine grace, by the atoning love of Christ who stood in our place at the cross, who bore our sin, who rose from the dead, who received the promise of the Holy Spirit and sent him to bring us to conviction and faith in the gospel, to unite us to Christ, to live in us as a seal and the continuous indwelling ministry, keeping us and conforming us to his image until we're home and completely conformed to his image in heaven, takes sinners and makes them as vessels for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And all because of Christ. And so Peter's life encourages us and reminds us and shows us how he was a man 
through the providence of God and the grace of God, uniquely prepared to write an epistle like 1 Peter so that we could learn from him as a man who lived these things. He knows them. And we have much, we do well to listen to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for examples of those you've given us throughout Scripture. Men and women whom you have called to yourself by faith. Men and women who have feet of clay, even the greatest are shown to be yet still sinners. Even David, one who, through whom you would come, our Lord Jesus, in the flesh, whom you gave a great promise to say one would sit on his throne to live forever and ever, a man called your friend and after your own heart. Yet was a man who was still capable within himself of great sin and great folly and great foolishness. But through all of these things, we're reminded that our eyes are to look not to men, though we learn from them, but always lifted up back to heaven to our gracious Savior, who despite our failures, despite our sin, despite our weakness, always stands ready to forgive as a merciful and a sympathetic and a faithful high priest. May we fix our eyes on you and set our mind on the things above, not the things that are here on earth. Set our minds on the things above where you are, Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. You in whom is our life, in whom is our redemption, and in whom is our hope. And may we, like these faithful servants, though failing and stumbling, always grow in our wonder at grace and be encouraged to live faithfully to you until the end and keep us faithful until the end. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.